Igor led the Rangers to a big win over the Maple Leafs Wednesday after winning three of their last four. Can the Rangers sneak back in the playoff race? We asked the longtime post-Rangers beat writer, Larry Brooks. We are also joined by former Ranger and NBC analyst, the great Eddie Olchuk. All that and more next on Up in the Blue Seats with the New York Post. Ladies and gentlemen, we ask that you direct your attention to Center Ice for a special Welcome to Up in the Blue Seats Podcast, a New York Rangers podcast with the New York Post. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate the show five stars. Write a nice review for Ron. The Post Rangers beat writer Larry Brooks joins us in his weekly spot. We'll also have former Ranger and one of the best analysts in hockey for NBC Sports, Eddie Olchick, coming on the show. A little Eddie-O for you. But now... Here's your host of Up in the Blue Seats, number 10 for the Rangers on the 10th episode of the show, Ron Duguay. Hi, it's good to be back. Good to be back after the All-Star Weekend. The Rangers have won three out of the last four, two of them against Detroit, back-to-back, two games that they needed to win as they still pursue the playoffs in game two of the Detroit game. Chris Kreider gets hurt. They come home. They play against Dallas, and you can see how they were missing Chris Kreider. But back last night against the Toronto Maple Leafs, a big win where Kreider was very impactful. But at that game, it was special because I got to go to the game with our producer, Jake, and Jake was celebrating his birthday. What was that like for you last night, Jake? Oh, it was a good time. You know, yeah. 29th birthday, final year of my 20s. I'm a little, I'm almost halfway to you at this point. Got a long way to go. Uh, we had, you know, the nice view by the ice. You see every hit that comes close to you, it feels like you're getting hit. I mean, it's loud, and the puck just hits the glass, and it, you just you duck and cover. Yeah. I mean, you know it well. You, you've been hit into that glass many times. I enjoy bringing friends, family by the glass just so they can see the pace of the game, how quick it is. Mm-hmm. It's really quick. Right, because yeah. you're sitting up way up the top. Up you the don't blue realize seats. how quick yeah. it is. In the blue seats, yeah. Go. But you get by the ice, you realize, wow, these guys are quick and they're skilled. They have to make decisions real quick-like. And then you can see where we're standing, the puck going to the goaltender, how that goaltender has to make quick decisions. And you love to see the rebound, seeing how the player plays off the rebound, see the goalie dive and try and get it away. I mean, there was one that was really close that they almost had a review right, right in front of our faces. And you really see it up close and personal. So, uh it was cool. It was a good time. Then the facial expressions, because the guys come into the corner, they're mm-hmm. banging each other. Someone gives the other player a little. Watch you know, your wording there. Yeah, please. and so you Might can have to edit that one. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of lot of chirping going on, yeah. and it just brings the game to really brings the game to life. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, it's not a view I usually get. Um, I haven't been on the ice. I can't skate for the life of me. I know you were a world-class figure skater as well as a player back in your day. I can't say if I went skating, I would stay a put. I'd probably tear an ACL, maybe break a knee, a little fat boy Jake in there. I know you wanted me to say that one <laughs> one time. Uh, so it would end ugly. So I really have an appreciation for you guys being able to skate, period. You get a lot of true Ranger fans. I mean, being there with you, you see people, and I know you love it. You you got the Sharpie, you're signing, you're giving, you know, giving kids – uh, a puck you're you know kids are taking pictures with you ron take a picture with me you got middle-aged women love you i mean they flock to you uh you know they say oh my husband used to have the duguay haircut so like being there with you is pretty uh interesting to see that but again it's true fans at these games and that's why 
it is more exciting being at the Rangers game. They score, the place goes crazy. It's a cool time. I've been going recently. I've been going to Knicks games because I want them to come back to life and support the team. So it's going to be a while. Uh, well, I've, so I've gone courtside, and it's just a different uh, energy because mm-hmm. there's no hitting, yeah. and there's a ball, and uh, and so it's more of a um, entertainment versus the speed and the power of hockey. But I still, I really enjoy going to the Knicks games because people like there, they're, they're more, they're socializing a lot more. There's a lot more talking. There's a lot more breaks. Not much cheering, a lot more talking. Yeah. Um, the streets have been talking lately because of an Instagram post that you had this week. Um, no, none of us really knew this. I didn't know this. You know, I'm starting to learn more about your family. I know your son Noah is a big fisherman deep in the blue sea of, of Florida uh, on the coast. And you also have a daughter and your daughter lives in California, correct? Yes. What is Shea. her name? Shay. Both Shay and Amber. Shay. First, yeah, they're the oldest. S H E A or A Y? Well, here here's the story on Shay. It's S H A Y. Okay, not and, like Shea Stadium. And okay. so she's. Um, she, we were living in Connecticut. I was playing for the Rangers at the time. We were living in Connecticut, and she was about. With my wife at the time was about to give birth, and we we're trying to figure out a name, a good name, and I wanted to be something different. And so one day I'm just on. I'm in my car driving back home, and I drive by. Shea Stadium, and I'm thinking, wow, Shea, Shea, I like that name, but I can't spell it that way. And I thought, also, it, it kind of rhymes with Shea Dugay. Oh, so I get home, <laughs> I, I talk to my wife then, and I said, what do you think of Shea? She says, well, how are you going to spell that? I said, well, it can't spell it the same way as Shea Stadium, S-H-E-A. Why can't you? Isn't copyright? So there's a lot of people named S-H-E-A. Yeah, well, it would have been like me copying the building. So I didn't want to do that, so I spelled it S-H-A-Y, okay. and her middle name is Natil. Natil is French. Oh. I'm French. She's not French. And so anyways, I just had a feeling like this kid was going to be different mm-hmm. and because I have three kids. You know, all the kids are all different, different characters, and I felt like Someday, I'm going to be able to share this with her, and she'll get it or not. But uh, the thing with Shay, and so I posted that picture the other day about— And uh, if you haven't seen it, follow Ron on Twitter and Instagram, at RonDugay10. He posted a picture of Shay, beautiful daughter, um, and she has a tattoo of Ron yeah. on her—the left arm? I'm trying to picture left arm. Yes. Right right about where her elbow is. So if she has Tommy John surgery, it's going to cover up the uh, the mm-hmm. tattoo, so we don't want that. Uh, it is your face with like the Duguay hair. You have you don't really have facial hair here. This is probably you when you were at 24, 25. Well, it's actually the picture that Andy Warhol took, and he put me on the cover of Interview Magazine. It's that same picture. That picture. That same picture. So that, yeah. Do you think the tattoo artist did a good job? I, I think they did a good job. Yeah, they, yeah, they did. And because my daughter uh, was raised, born and raised in California, mm-hmm. uh, well, born in Connecticut, and then we got traded, went to the Kings, and essentially she has stayed out there. And she went through a uh, period of wanting to be like everyone else. One little tattoo led to another to another. And then uh, Which she led dis- to her dad getting tattooed. Yeah. On her arm. <laughs> what and a turn so they, of they call about they call it a sleeve. Yeah. You know, like the basketball players like to have a whole sleeve. Well, she uh, had half a sleeve and part of it was me. And at the time when she did I I didn't say a whole lot because there was too many tattoos and I and I couldn't really appreciate it at the time, but now I do because she was a little bit of a troubled child mm-hmm. <laughs> she's come out of it yeah she's a mom married now and a great kid she's my little angel um but at the time it wasn't something that i celebrate but now i do i appreciate it. now i get it how long did it take you for you to kind of appreciate because at first you're probably like it's a little weird but like 
I do look good on. Uh, I do look pretty damn good. Uh, like, what it, was your reaction initially? It, it took a, a good ten years. Ten Only, years. Yes, wow. because she went through her struggles, mm-hmm. and maybe we have it on, have her on the air one time, just kind of talk. Let's call about her it. next week. Yeah, call her next week. Yeah, let's do it next week. Okay. Um, I'm curious. We have someone helping us out with the program now. Sarah McCrory here. Would you ever say your dad played in the NHL? Would you consider getting him tattooed on your arm? <laughs> <laughs> if my dad played in the NHL, probably. I was you gonna would. Say, yeah, because I was going to say, it'd be weird if I did that now, because it's just my dad. Yes. Um, but you're not a normal person, so that's yeah. cool. And she's celebrating you. I think maybe it would be more normal if I got maybe, like, a card my dad wrote to me, like, his handwriting or something like that. That's what you usually get. You get, like, either the date or the date, if, if they passed away the date, to honor them. Or you get a quote that they said, like, you know. This too shall be had. Some some quote, some Shakespearean quote that they've said or something. Mm. But the picture is a new one. Mm. But so you you would get a quote over a picture. You're saying, Sarah? Yeah. Or or okay. If my dad was a professional athlete, I'd probably get his number. Mm. I feel like that'd be number cool. ten. Yeah. So yeah. let me ask you: Do either one of you have tattoos? No. No. Neither my mom <laughs> would put me up for adoption. My mom's Jewish, so if I got a tattoo, I've thought about getting. I know this is embarrassing. Uh, a Mr. Met tattoo somewhere where he can't yeah. really be seen. Uh-huh. I've thought about it. You, you but still live with your mom? No, I don't live with my mom. <laughs> but like, if she found out, no, my mom's in South Carolina. They're they're far away. But if okay. if I got that, she would probably you know be, yeah. she'd be. Like, it's against the Jewish tradition, Jake. That well, would be the mar- first thing she said. It's marking your body. Yeah. Right. And it if, once it's marked. I, I, I'm nowadays you can get them off. Listen, we, also all our parents aren't as good looking as you, Ron. So let's let's keep it real. <laughs> I, I know you needed that ego boost there, so uh, that plays a factor as well. But you know, why don't you talk some hockey with Larry Brooks next? Rangers beat writer for the New York Post, Larry Brooks now joins us. You can follow Larry on Twitter at nyp underscore brooksy. Brooksy, so myself and Jake, we went to the game last night uh, celebrating his birthday. And uh, other than celebrating his birthday in watching the game, it was a fun game to watch. And two players stood out to us, and that's Kreider and Bushnevich. And um, and for Kreider, because I read your article this morning, uh, the continued talk is why why take so long to make a decision on Kreider? What is it that you're feeling? Because I, I, I sense that uh, you're feeling the way I did, and I look back at Kevin Hayes and, and why they took so long to make a decision on him. And I think we're seeing a similar thing with Kreider. Is anything making sense to you on why they're taking so long? No, it, it isn't. And I, and I think uh, part of what I, what I was uh, uh, attempting to get across in the, in the piece this morning is that while we talk about the Rangers' decision, it's Kreider's decision now, honestly. Um, and a player now is essentially is essentially five months from free agency. Uh, very rarely do you see guys forego free agency at this point of the year. And whether the Rangers want to keep him or not, whether the Rangers um, believe that they are uh, on the cusp of, of – uh, becoming what they want to be in the next two or three years, or they think it's five years down the line. I'm not sure. Honestly, I, I, I don't understand why there hasn't been a dialogue between the Rangers and, and, and Kreider's camp. Um, I'm not, uh, I, I'm just not sure. I think perhaps they uh, had always intended to trade him. However, um, after the, after the last six weeks, aren't sure. I, I honestly don't have a, a better answer than that, but I, I do know 
that they uh, that they have ceded all leverage in this to Kreider. There's no question about that now. It's Kreider's call. Um, the Rangers may want to keep him. It may not be possible. What I don't get is this, really. Maybe Kreider is going to ask for something completely unrealistic. Completely unrealistic, you know? But why wouldn't they have wanted to know that five weeks ago or a month ago? Um, I, I'm just not sure um, how they're handling this. Um, I'm sure they have their reasons. It would be interesting if they explain them um, after the deadline, if you know, whichever way this goes. But um, it, it seems to me that uh, that I'm just not sure uh, um, why it's gone this this route. Yeah, because they you you would have thought you would think that last year after seeing what he has done, you kind of have a pretty good idea what kind of player he is. He had a good season, and then the start of this season, he's struggling for maybe some obvious reasons, you would think that, okay, now's the time to pencil this guy in because he's struggling, right, long-term. Because we know what he can do. It's just a matter of there's an adjustment that needs to be had with the coaching and the players and all this. But eventually he's going to come around, as we're seeing now. And it's so similar to Kevin Hayes. There was a time before the deadline where Kevin was struggling, and he would have signed at a decent price. And now Kevin is in a place where he is in the driver's seat and then when you think about the Rangers moving forward, do they take a step backwards or do they take a step forward by signing him or not signing him? Because if you're going to trade him, you got to have equal value within within a year, you would think, if you're going to make a trade for the guy. It's not like you want future considerations. And um, so there's so much that doesn't make sense to me as it doesn't to you, but uh, they're on the inside. They know more about really what's going on, and it's just a matter of time and just wait and see what happens. So having said that, uh, another player to talk about is Busnevich. Uh, has a good game last night against Toronto, uh, but before that he had some struggles. Uh, he sat out a period. So how would you describe his inconsistency? I think he's I, – I, I think that, that – can it go – well, let me just go back to the Kreider um, question as, as it applies to Hayes, though. Because at least with Hayes, the Rangers had players behind him. They wanted to open up a spot for Heedle. So, you know, that went into their thinking. With Kreider, there's nobody who, you know, they're, they're opening a spot for if they trade Kreider. So that's, let, let me just, you know, let me just add that. Buknevich, I, I, I think with Buknevich is it's, his game, it's not natural to him to be a battler. It's not natural for him to, to work the walls and to, to work the corners. I don't think that's his game. And I, and I think that the coaching staff is, has, has implored him to, to be more of that kind of a player, to, be, to play with jam basically on most of his shifts instead of very few of his shifts. And it's nothing that's instinctual to him. And so there are nights like Monday night against Dallas where he is just in just just caught in between of everything. He's not there when, when he's not uh, when he's not battling for the puck, uh, when he's turning it over, when he's making what what you know people will call soft plays. He you know, he's uh, he's going to get a seat on the bench. He just is. Last night from the first shift, puck was dumped in. Buknevich was battling. He was a different player. And when Buknevich gets involved physically, he generally winds up on the score sheet. So it, it's it's a, still a, a young player, I think, um, trying to find his way in the NHL, playing for a coach that wants him to be a little bit more competitive physically on every shift. So he's got skill. Everybody knows that. Everybody sees it. It's just drawing it out of him 
on a on a more consistent basis. Guys, guys love playing with him. They do. I mean, Zabanajed loves playing with him. Kreider loves playing with him. So you know, there's a line there that the Rangers have. Um, there's a unit there that teams have to defend when it's Kreider, Zabanajed, and Buknevich. Yeah, I would enjoy playing with him because he's got. Um, great hands. I mean, he makes outstanding plays when he has the puck. It's just that he's more of an opportunist. Sometimes he just kind of waits for the puck to come to him versus uh, just get involved. Be noticeable on the ice. And that's the one thing when I coached, I, uh, the one thing I would make mention to my players, I said, find a way to be noticeable, whatever that is. Like you, you watch Lemieux play. He's noticeable on the ice. Whether he's scoring, he's doing something. He gets involved. And so, yeah, he has a tendency to kind of let things come to him, and he doesn't understand that, you know, taking the body, sometimes that's all it takes, you know, just be involved because sometimes the puck doesn't come to you. So just be involved. Uh, moving on with another player that it's kind of in the news that uh, he's having a great year, and that's D'Angelo. He's another player that's talked about. Do you sign him or do you trade him? I, th- I again, I, I think um, some of that decision is going to is going to come down to what they believe the number is going to be. I I'm not so sure that that they're going to move D'Angelo at the deadline. I, I think there'll be plenty. There'll be more teams interested in D'Angelo at the draft because right now, of course, it only makes sense really for contenders to go after him or or teams with an immense amount of cap space next year. And I, I think that's one that can play out at the draft. Um, but again, I, I think the Rangers are going to have to evaluate um, Niels Lundqvist, how quickly they think he's going to be able to make an impact uh, in the NHL. Will he be an NHL player next year? I mean, they've, they've got a, a fairly good right side. If Jacob Truba gets his game together, which he really hasn't done this year more than for one or two nights at a time. He's been very erratic. I thought he had a tough game last night, a very difficult game last night. He's, he's been pretty mistake-prone lately again. Um, if Jacob Truba gets his game together, then they're one, two, three on the right side of Fox, D'Angelo, and Truba, whichever, whichever order you want to put them. And right now, Adam Fox is their number one right defenseman. Yeah, I think he's the best defenseman on their team right now. But, you know, if you have those three, Truba gets his game together and they can keep D'Angelo – that's a pretty good right side and it's a young right side and you can build with that right side for five years. Now, of course, they've got Lundqvist, who's uh, a first rounder from a couple of years ago. Is he going to push one of those three guys out? And if he does, obviously, it's not going to be Truba, who has a seven year deal. It's certainly not going to be Adam Fox. And so it probably would be D'Angelo. So I, I, I think, you know, I think the money becomes a factor and I think uh, their evaluation of Lundqvist becomes a factor. But you know, last night's goal, the the, the Hedl goal, there aren't many there aren't many defensemen who make that pass to Philip Hedl. I mean, D'Angelo comes down the right side, he opens up, and he just fires it across for Hedl to, to to deflect it in. So he's a rare talent. There's no doubt about that. He's a, he's a, he is a special offensive talent, Tony D'Angelo. Yeah, he is. Moving forward, are are you seeing an end to the three goalie system coming up soon? Yes, I am. Um, you know, it's interesting that before the game last night, uh, David Quinn was talking about again the three goalie system and kind of an and as kind of an aside, he said, you know, it, it, it's 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 almost impossible. Yeah, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now. It's uh, it's almost impossible to keep three goalies sharp, and I don't think the Rangers are even going to continue the pretense of trying. 
Um, I think that Shesterkin's their number one. I think that Georgiev is going to be their number two, and I'm not sure how they're going to handle this with, with Lundqvist. All right. Well, good talking with you. Till next week. Thanks, Ronnie. Same to you. Welcome back. My next guest uh, played 16 seasons in the NHL, three of them with the New York Rangers. Also, lead game analyst for the NHL on NBC and NHL on NBC Sports Network. Also, being an American, part of the USA Hockey Hall of Fame. Welcome, the great Eddie Olchuk. Our followers, a lot of them are Ranger fans, and um, and they want to know about the Ranger team moving forward. There's been a transition period. And for what you've seen, how would you describe this team? Well, they're certainly trending in the right direction. I, I think that uh, Jeff and his staff uh, has done a really good job, Ron, moving, uh, you know, moving out of uh, a situation where they didn't have a lot of assets, they didn't have a lot of draft equity, uh, they didn't have a lot of cap space. And that became available, and you got a, in my opinion, a top ten player in the entire National Hockey League, the Breadman Artemi Panarin, to sign as a free agent. And now you've acquired draft picks and moves that you've made, and now you're starting to, you know, draft and see some of these young players get the opportunity. And so I think that they're trending in the right direction. Uh, you know, we know a lot of the story nationally. At least people that I talk to is, you know, what's going to happen in goal with the, the depth that they have in goal. And it's, it's, it's King uh, Henrik's, uh, you know, crease, so to speak, but you got a couple of young guys pushing for more ice time and, and wanting to play. So, but I, but I look at them as a team that's, uh, that's uh, taking the right step. Are, are they, you know, uh, are they a playoff team next year? Well, certainly you'd hope that some of the young players would take the next step forward. Maybe they can add, you know, a forward. Uh, maybe they got somebody in the pipeline that can step up and, you know, you can get some young players to, you know, maybe go to the next level that are on the roster right now. And as well as, you know, what, what happens with a guy like Chris Kreider? Does he get signed? Does he get moved? And what other assets might come in? you know, if you do move them. So I think there's a lot there, but uh, to me, the Rangers are on the right path and there is no cliff notes, you know, a version of, of, of going from, uh, you know, missing the playoffs to winning the Stanley Cup. Yes, it happens, but I think you got to have patience. And I think Ranger fans certainly understand that. So I think Jeff and his staff have done a wonderful job and they're on the right path. Now, how long it'll be until they're, you know, a top, five team in a league well you know I think the jury's still out on that but I, I really like the way that they're trending with you being as good as you are doing television and I really appreciate your work uh besides the fact that uh you've played 16 seasons you were part of a Stanley Cup team but you also coached when you think about coaching when you look at David Quinn what are your thoughts on him being able to be able to get these players to the next level well I I've known Quinner a long time Ron I, I you know, we came into, we got drafted in the same year in the NHL back in 1984. And, you know, I knew who he was as a young kid and, and followed him throughout his, his professional career. And then obviously, and it was coaching at college and then, you know, getting the opportunity, uh, you know, with, with the blue shirts. Uh, the, the one thing I've always appreciated with, with, with David Quinn is, is there's, there's no, you know, there's no in between, like there's no fluff. There's just, you know, there's, it's either this way or that way. Like he doesn't beat around the bush. And I think as a player, and you know this, Ronnie, I mean, 
you, you want to know where you stand, right? Like as a player, you, you tell me what I need to know, not what I want to hear. And I think that he has that, you know, that characteristic. I think he has that reputation inside that locker room and in, in, in within the organization. And to me, that's, that's what you, that's what you want. And look, we know, look, at you have good players. It's going to make good coaches. Right. Like I, I lived it in Pittsburgh, unfortunately for me, when I was there, you know, we were right there at, in, in a, in, in a, in a rebuild, like we broke it right down and we got to the bare bones and said, look, you know, our plan is, is for five years down the road. And, and we were right at the foundation of, of breaking it down. And then all of a sudden, you know, we, we win the lottery and we get Sidney Crosby. And then all of a sudden the change in philosophy went from, you know, trying to in a five-year plan to all of a sudden try to make the playoffs that next year and so you know it's it's not easy but you got to have that leadership up top they certainly have that obviously with JD back in New York and and, and where he should be and and then Jeff and his staff and a guy like David Quinn who I think uh, knows the game I think has a, a great demeanor uh, and uh, can get this team to to where the Rangers want to get to but again he you give a coach good players, uh, you're going to see a really good coach. And uh, I think the better players that come in for the Rangers, you're going to see an even better job from, from David Quinn. And uh, I always enjoy getting in there, Ronnie, and, and doing the Ranger games. And, uh, you know, it's hard to believe a year ago we celebrated our 25-year anniversary of winning the Stanley Cup in New York with the Rangers, which is really hard to believe a year ago. And uh, Coach Quinn and uh, his staff allowed uh, – us old guys to come into the locker room and uh, and address the, the team last year. And it was just a great thrill to be back and celebrate with the Ranger fans at the Garden. So to get a chance to spend some time with, with David Quinn was, was good to catch up uh, last year. And it's always good to uh, be in the building when the Rangers are playing because it certainly brings back, uh, selfishly for me personally, a lot of great memories of being a very small part of a team that won the Cup with the Rangers in 94. Yeah, that brings me to my next question, because you were here three years. You come in. Now, things are different. They're not on the rebuild. They're a team that wants to win the Stanley Cup. You're part of that, and you have Coach uh, Mike Keenan. So how would you compare those two type of coaching? Is coaching changed nowadays when you look at Mike Keenan and David Quinn? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's – yeah. It is the days of, uh, of Iron Mike, uh, I, I would anticipate, uh, that those days are long gone. Like I don't think that you can be a uh, in-your-face, uh, negative, um, brow-beating type of uh, leader or coach with the way that athletes and players are today. And just speak spe- specifically, Ronnie, on, on on NHL players. I think you know there's a way to go about it, uh, but those days of uh, belittling and uh, embarrassing and uh, you know, taking guys out to the woodshed publicly and in behind closed doors. I think I think those days are gone. And, um, you know, it depends on – look, I, I'm all for tough love. I mean, I am. I, look at – like, I think, again, I think players want a couple of things. They want structure. They want discipline. And I guess I'll throw in another thing, so I should have said three things. They they want consistency. And I think when they have a coach that, uh, that leads and is there to help pick them up when things aren't going well uh, or when they need to be straightened up, or be told, you know, uh, what they need to know, not what they want to hear. I think most players, I think most people in society want that. And uh, I think today's coach is, is much different uh, 
the working environment is much different. The player is much different. You have to change and evolve. And the guys that are able to do that, like I mean, look at a guy like Torch, like John Tortorella, who coached the Rangers for a long time, had great success and is doing an amazing job with Columbus right now. He's he's one of my co- three finals for coaches of the year this year. I mean, he has just done an amazing job with a turned over roster. Uh, not a lot of health there. They lost their number one goaltender in there in the playoffs. So, I mean, he's done a hell of a job there. But I just think that you look at a guy like Torch, he's evolved. He's still hard. He's still a demanding coach. But, you know, I think his delivery and the way his patience and all that has changed and evolved. And I think that's what you have to do when you look at the successful coaches. Uh, you got to be able to do that and know who your team is. And you got to know when to push the right button. You got to know when to say, okay, you know what, nobody come to the rink today, enjoy your day off, and come ready to work tomorrow. So, but coaching has is, is changed. And, yeah, there are coaches back in the day that could not, you know, they would be able to coach, but uh, they would have a very, very difficult time because the players of today would probably more, probably be more apt to uh, to turn and to just say, you know what, I'm I'm going to be here a lot longer than you are. So uh, we'll see who uh, we'll see who outlasts who, and uh, we all know it's a lot easier to fire one person than it is to uh, fire 24 or 25 players. Yeah, again, talking about coaching, I had the great Herb Brooks uh, miracle on ice. Uh, you know, the talk this year or right now, it's the 40th uh, 40 year anniversary. What did that mean to you as an American back then? Well, it meant everything because I I was a uh, 12-year-old young hockey player just amazed at what was going on in Lake Placid, Ronnie, back in 1980. And, you know, being an American kid and always having dreamed about playing in the NHL, I knew that, you know, the majority of the players in the league at that time were were Canadian-born. And it was hard for Americans to, to crack that barrier. And that 1980 team opened up the door for for myself and for a lot of players after that. And I thought as a 12 year old kid, wow, how great would it be to play in the Olympics and full disclosure. I mean, like I said, I was 12 years old turning 13 and I'm like, man, that would be great to play that when I'm maybe, you know, maybe if I'm 20 or 24 and then next thing you know, I got an invitation as a 16 year old to try out for the 1984 U S Olympic hockey team, the team that had the unfortunate, I should say unfortunate, but the, 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 the privilege to try to follow in the footsteps of the 1980 Miracle on Ice team. And uh, the pressure was obviously immense to try to follow in the footsteps of that gold medal team. Uh, but for me, Ronnie, I got a chance to try out as a 16-year-old four years later, and I made the team as a 16-year-old, played in the Olympics as a 17-year-old in Sarajevo, Yugoslavia in, in February of 1984. And, and uh, I, you know, obviously we didn't win a gold medal. We finished in seventh place that year, but I would never trade that experience in for anything because it helped prepare me for life in the NHL. And, and that 1980 Miracle on Ice team opened up the door for a lot of American-born players like myself. And uh, we still owe them a, a, a great tip of the hockey helmet because uh, what they did, they got the attention of a lot of people. Not only, you know, I would argue it's my opinion, and, and there's a lot of bias here, but to me, I think that's the greatest sporting moment that I've ever seen or been a part of. I just as a fan, uh, as a hockey player, an aspiring hockey player, to me, that was just incredible. It was a miracle that they were able to pull off what they did. And a lot of those, uh, a lot of those people, both on and off the ice, deserve uh, a lot of credit for opening up the doors for American-born hockey players to the next level, and that being the National Hockey League. Yeah, well, I really benefited because I got her books that next season. I end up scoring 40 goals. I play with Mark Pavlich, Dave Silk. So I, I – 
got a feel for it and I got a taste for it. But uh, a lot of what you've been through, and it's in your book, Beating the Odds in Hockey and in Life, we're going to get to it one minute. i got one last question for you before we let you go. And what's in the news right now is Ovechkin versus Gretzky, his scoring streak. Do you think it's possible? Do you, well, I, we believe it's possible, but do you think is it, is it going to happen? Because when you look at Gretzky his last four years, uh, after averaging maybe 55 goals a season, he only averaged 20 goals a season in the last four years. So do you think Ovechkin is able to keep up that pace? I do. I do, Ronnie, because, look, I think it's one thing. Well, look, there's a couple things. One is, is health, right? Like, he's, he's got to stay healthy. Two, he's going to have really good players around him for the next five years. I mean, Backstrom just re-signed uh, John Carlson, who might get 100 points as a D-man, which is really unheard of in today's hockey. He's going to be there for the next six, seven years. Uh, the way the game is, to me, this is the biggest factor besides health. The, the biggest factor is is that the rules and the way the game is played now caters to offense. Look at if Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux played in today's era, those guys would those, those guys would get twelve hundred, or they'd have they'd have twelve hundred goals. I, I really believe that. I, I do. Um, you know, you played in a super tough era. I came in right you know right after that in 84 where it was still very tough but it wasn't you know clutching and grabbing hooking and holding and everything else like it 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 was you played in you played in our era I mean you had to be a tough player to play in that era but the offense now the rules today cater to offense and I, I really believe that this guy is hungry he can score goals in a lot of different ways he believes I really get the sense he believes is that he can take down that number, that magic 894 number held by, by the great one. Uh, so, look, he's approaching 700. And when you do the math, um, why not? And I think it would be – I think I think the media attention, I would hope anyways, Ronnie, I don't care if it's New York, Chicago, L.A., uh, north of the border. Uh, we know what it's going to be like in Washington. But if he can get within, you know, like that 25-goal mark, uh, could you imagine the attention that that's going to get? Because I think most people, me included, uh, 20 years ago, you sit there and go, man, Gretzky's got, what, you got like 80-some records in his life, right, in the NHL playoffs and regular season. 894, who in the hell is going to score 894 goals, right? Even with the way the goaltenders are today, the goaltending's better today. The, the systems, the schematics are better today. The athletes are probably in better condition today than they were of yesteryear. The equipment's better. Um, but the game, like I said, to me, the rules catered offense, and, and why not? So uh, I think he's going to do it. I do. I really do. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see, uh, you know, how this all plays out here in the next couple of years. Eddie Olchick joining us here and up in the blue seats. Now, Eddie, a lot of people talking about your book, um, beating the odds in hockey and in life, and you overcame cancer. It's just an incredible story all around. I'm interested in the part, being a, a little bit of a gambler that I am, that <laughs> you're, you're a big horse betting guy, and you once yeah. made over half a million dollars betting on horses. We actually saw Nick Fotillo at the game last night, and I think he told us, what did he say, Ron? He said that one time that he bet your horses and, and they didn't hit for him, so he wanted us to tell you that. Um, but he, Well, he said something different. Yeah, but. He might yeah, use- yeah you, know, you know what I will say, though, is that, that you know probably the reason was is that probably I remembered when he elbowed me right in the mouth when I was a rookie in the NHL, and I figured, you know what? 
I'm not going to be able to get even dropping my gloves with the uh, with the legendary Nikki Patiu, but you know what? That's the way to get even. Give him some stiff horse one night and say, ah, now I'm even with him, right? <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll tell him that was the reason. How did that come about? Like, how did you start picking horses? Like, did you start, like, researching that? It's just yeah. a very interesting uh, part, and it's, it's part of the title, obviously, of beating the odds. Yeah, I mean, Jake, I was a young kid growing up in Chicago, and I used to go to the racetrack uh, as a young kid. I actually went there when I was 12 or 13 years old as a kid for the first time, didn't know anything about anything. I just was amazed at these 1,200-pound animals running, and you got crazy uh, human beings sitting on the back of them going 35 miles an hour. And just I was just mesmerized by the, by, the, by the animal and the horse, and then I started learning about the handicapping part and the horse racing so i've been involved in horse racing for really for 40 years of my life and uh, now I've, I've turned it into an opportunity at, at nbc my boss at sam flood hired me five years ago to be a part of our horse racing coverage for the triple crown and other horse racing events on nbc and nbcsn and i gave me that chance to uh you know to be a part of the horse racing coverage for my handicapping and i actually got my start in television believe it or not in horse racing quick story we won the cup in 94 with the rangers and then ranger fans will remember the next year there was a work stoppage there was a labor uh uh labor disagreement between the league and the nhl players association so we we we, we had a stoppage we were locked out so that year after we won the cup there was no hockey for the first you know three or four months of the regular season so the people at the meadowlands racetrack which i used to go to every once in a while were big ranger fans and I brought the Stanley Cup there to celebrate uh, back in June. And uh, they said, hey, look, you know, you're not working hockey. Why don't you come work at the racetrack and be our, you know, our in-house handicapper and do our race recap show. I think it was on Sports Channel America or whatever it was at that time or maybe even on MSG. And so I was like, wow, I can go to the racetrack. They're going to pay me to go to the track. I'm going to pick horses and. I can dabble in television. That's how, that's my first television job I had was working at the racetrack. So push it forward some, uh, you know, whatever, 20 years, Sam Flood, my boss, gave me the opportunity, and now I'm the uh, the lead uh, handicapper for our coverage on NBC for horse racing. So that's kind of how I got involved in it full-time, but it's been a part of my life for, for 40 years, and it's always been a passion of mine of uh, going to the track and and just having that little bit of a relief. The guys would go golfing in the summer or whatever. I would, you know, I chase uh, I chase the horses around and uh, uh, and uh, try to make a little bit of money of uh, of handicapping the horses. Ron, let's just say I didn't have the same success in my Super Bowl prop bets that uh, Eddie had in his half million dollar winning. And well, hey, you know what? You're talking about that. You know what's interesting? I just made I made three plays on I made three plays on the Super Bowl. One was I liked the Chiefs with the points. So I you know I laid the points. Two is is I uh, got the prop with uh, Garoppolo over a half of inter half of interception in the Super Bowl. I thought for sure he'd throw at least one, and he did. And then, uh, like a few people, I thought that Patrick Mahomes would run for more than 34 or 35 yards uh, as far as rushing yards. And that bet was it was in until he decided to kneel three straight times and lose. You don't need to remind yards. me. I had over 32 and a half. He went backwards 15 yards in the three kneels. So that was one of the uh, many I, I know. So that, that's, that's, that's what you call, uh, you know, you, you win, but you lose. So uh, I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed that Super Bowl. And uh, that Patrick Mahomes kid, uh, he's pretty special, isn't he? Wow, that, well, what, that, a, what a performance. You, I'll tell you, that's what you call gambling because that's what happens, things like that when you gamble. <laughs>
So, Eddie, I want to talk about your book, and you mentioned life, and I guess you you could say that you've been blessed in many ways, but uh, often uh, we have bumps in the road, and you've had to deal with that, and uh, that's why I believe that's why you wrote your book. Um, when people have read your book, they reviewed it, and you get five star. You've uh, you kind of talk about your life, but you add some humor out of it. And uh, so, how what is the big take out of your book, and why you wrote your book? Well, I mean, I think for a couple of reasons. I mean, I've had the opportunity, Ronnie, in the past to to kind of document my life and where I came from, and all the you know different hurdles. And we've all you know life you know life is a battlefield. I mean, we all have adversity, and we all get to certain parts in our life but you know for me I mean I I was always every time I turned everybody would doubt whether or not I could I could make it to the National Hockey League as you mentioned being an American-born kid growing up in Chicago I mean not very many Chicago kids make it to the National Hockey League you know when I tried out for the U.S. Olympic hockey team at 16 everybody told me I wouldn't make it Uh, when I turned pro there were some people that said publicly that uh, that uh, I would have a good NHL career if I didn't eat my way out of the NHL and the first thing I asked was well what the hell's wrong with a hungry hockey player I mean we like hungry hockey players and the NHL doesn't stand for national it does stand for national hockey league but it also stands for never hungry league there's always food around but you know I was you know I was bullied as a kid and and uh, had to overcome that but you know I think there's no pun intended but the final chapter and decision on how I decided on wanting to Good get to this initiative of writing the book was is when I did get diagnosed with stage three colon cancer back on August the fourth at seven oh seven PM of twenty seventeen and then that's where I thought, well maybe maybe there's a story here. Maybe I can help inspire somebody. My life as a is a hockey player, as a broadcaster, as somebody in the media that I have this ability to be able to reach out to people and it was a way to, to put pen to paper for sixteen months and, and hopefully either help somebody get through this horrible disease, help them get through the day, help inspire them to be as honest and forthright and transparent uh, in my in my journey through cancer. And, uh, there, you know, when I'm communicating with people, whether it's, it's verbally or letters or text or email, is people appreciate the honesty and humility of me going through my battle because look, it's, it's, it's not easy. I mean, when you're, when you're diagnosed with cancer and cancer does not discriminate, the first thing I thought of was, well, how long do I have? Uh, you know, am I going to die? Uh, am I going to see my son get married? Am I going to see my grandchildren? Um, but I, I, I could say this in, I, I was very much at peace when I was going through my cancer battle. Um, I, I, I learned at a very young age, and I don't know how I learned it, um, but I'm very proud of it, is that I've always let the most important people in my life know how I felt about them, whether it was verbally, whether it was by old-fashioned pen to paper, stamp on an envelope, putting it in the, in the, in the, in the mailbox and sending it to them. Uh, I always have told people, look, like, God forbid – uh, that if something would happen to me, I need to hear from you that you know how much of an impact or how much I love you or an impact that you've had on my life because you've made my life. And my wife in particular, um, she always would say, no, nothing's going to happen, nothing's going to happen. But look, you know, in the big picture, we're all day to day. And it would kill me to not know if I was not here that my wife and my kids and my circle and we all have one is that those people didn't know how I felt about them. And when I was going through my cancer battle, 
really it helped me get through because when I was in the battle uh, and going through a difficult time of taking the chemotherapy, I was at peace. And if my time was up, then at least I knew that the most important people in my life knew how I felt about them. And that really helped me get through the toughest battle of my life. And when I talk about it in the book, I talk about the side effects and how I wanted to quit and how my wife picked me up and straightened me out. And I put my hockey helmet back on and, uh, and said, look, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to fight this day to day. I'm not going to try to get through the six months of chemo in two weeks. Um, so I needed that. I needed that, that caretaker and that caregiver and my wife to set me straight and get me back on that road to battling because look at it, it tests your will to live. It breaks you down when you are sick or you have this horrible disease. And uh, I had incredible support. Uh, my team of doctors, my family, my friends, uh, the Chicago Blackhawks, who also I do games for here in Chicago, Chicago on the local broadcast, uh, my NBC family. Uh, I was very, very lucky and, and proud to say that I'm approaching my two year anniversary of being cancer free and, the, uh, the, the the farther and quicker I get away from what I went through, uh, the better I feel. And hopefully I can help one person that they know my story or read my book. If I can help them get through the battle, then it was well worth the 16 months of pen to paper. Eddie, that is so well said. It essentially saying, get your house in order. And, and uh, if something needs to be said, if there's some forgiveness or honesty, make sure from day to day before you go to bed that uh, you're in a good place. And, and it brings me to think that we just lost Kobe Bryant and no one was thinking, he wasn't thinking that he was going to lose his life. And it really has you thinking that way from day to day, just be in a good place. So you're a great role model. Uh, I, I, uh, a lot more blessings for you moving forward and uh, continue doing what you're doing. Love having you on. We wish you the very best. Thank you. Ronnie, thanks for having me, Jake. I appreciate it. I wish you guys the best of luck and look forward to uh, seeing you guys uh, when I get to New York uh, somewhere down the road here when uh, a great game of hockey brings me into a place that uh, I'm very proud of. The greatest uh, accomplishment professionally in my life of being a very small part of the team that won that cup with the Rangers in 1994. It's really kind of hard to believe. I mean, 26 years, I like geez, man, am I getting old? Like, where in the hell is the time gone? So I appreciate you guys having me, and I look forward to uh, chatting in person the next time. So you guys have a wonderful day, and I appreciate you guys. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, we ask that you direct your attention to Center Ice for a special presentation. That's a wrap for Episode 10 of Up in the Blue Seats. Thanks to our producer, Jake Brown, for making it happen. Subscribe to the show and rate us five stars wherever you get your podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter at RonDuguay10. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next Thursday.